Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi everyone, welcome back to Medicus. This is Mara and today I'm here co-hosting with Josh. Hey guys. We are Our special guest today is Sharon Pike. She's here to tell us about her experience uh, raising a child with special needs and additionally talk about how healthcare providers can be an ally for families who have a child with special needs. We got to know Sharon through an experience that we had um, at our own medical school. Part of our pediatric education was working through what's called Operation Homefront, um, which Sharon is part of starting. So we'll be talking about that today. So welcome, Sharon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're yeah. glad to have you. Um, just go ahead and introduce yourself. Okay. I am Sharon Pike. I am the mother of four children, um, the best grandma to three children. <laughs> I have uh, three daughters and a son. Uh, my third daughter was born a full-term and unbeknownst to us with a host of issues. Uh, she's 30 years old now. And 30 years ago, we didn't do routine ultrasounds. So we were very unprepared for her delivery. Allison sort of shifted and kind of came up and sat right under my ribs. And for the next 24 hours, I felt no fetal movement at all. So I was pretty convinced that my baby had died. And we went to the doctor. For some reason, my husband was home the next day, which is very unusual. But we went to the doctor. She found a heart rate. And I thought, okay, my baby is alive. I mean, I just had no clue what was about to unravel. We went to the hospital to have an unstressed test. And that took forever because the machine wasn't working right. They couldn't pick up Allison's heart rate all the time. And she was just all over the place. And the nurses kept saying to me, are you okay? are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just having a baby. I've had two others. They were easy breezy deliveries. So I just didn't worry. And at one point, the doctor came in and did an ultrasound and said, oh my, this baby is very small and it's breech, but you've delivered eight pound babies before. So we're going to let you vaginally deliver this baby. And I thought, okay, I can do that. And again, the nurses kept saying, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. And at one point, the doctor um, looked at me, and I swear to God, said, you're harder to know what to do than my state boards. And I chuckled, which I really should have done was gotten off the table and ran. So they decided to try um, inducing my labor, give me some uh, Pitocin, and Elson didn't like that at all. And so we said, you know, it's getting late. Let's send your husband home, and we'll continue this in the morning. Well, and left. And 30 years ago, we didn't have cell phones. So we don't know how he got back to the hospital in time for Allison to be actually born because she crashed and we needed to do an emergency C-section. The neonatologist was present at my delivery. And when Allison was born, I just remember hearing, this baby weighs three pounds. And I was like, I don't have three pound, three pound babies. I have eight pound babies. And something's really wrong. And they whisked her off to the corner, and they worked on her for about three, three and a half hours, trying to intubate her, which they were unsuccessful in doing. I remember the neonatologist coming over and saying to me, she has no anatomy. And I didn't work in healthcare then. 
I like anatomy is a body. You just took a baby out of me. What do you mean she has no anatomy? And I'm now a hysterically crying mother because I know something's terribly wrong with my baby. And um, I now I know that she was trying to say they thought she probably had tracheoesophageal fistula or esophageal atresia, but I just heard no anatomy. And finally, they called for transport to come and bring her um, to the hospital. And um, I remember when the fellow came in, he was like, oh, my God, we have to get out of here now. So they whisked, we had her baptized, and they whisked her past me and stopped. And all I saw were this little body and wet hair and an ambu bag on her face. And that was my first vision of my daughter, which was horrifying. Um, So my husband followed her to the hospital because we didn't want her to die alone. And that's what we were kind of prepared for. When he got there, everybody was pretty somber. They still couldn't intubate her. So ENT had to come in and stitch her tongue down, pull it forward and stitch her tongue down. And I remember many months later being in the ER and um, one of the residents who was working in the ER at the time is like, I remember her. She was the bloodiest intubation I ever saw. And I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) I didn't need to know that. But they they told my husband that they thought Allison had uh, trisomy 13, 15 or 18, which was incompatible with life and that we really should be preparing for her death. And that poor man had to come to the community hospital and tell me that. And my heart breaks when I think about how hard that must have been for him. Mm-hmm. And I remember being at the hospital wishing and hoping that she had Down syndrome because I knew one boy who had Down syndrome and Teddy was a wonderful, wonderful, funny young man. And she didn't have Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. So I came um, after I was released from the hospital and we came up here and we met her and the hospital had, um, the nurses were so wonderful in the NICU. They took pictures, they sent them to me. Um, so I could see her, I, I, you know, I could see her face, um, even though it was, she had a ventilator, but I could still see her little, her little face. We spent eight weeks in the NICU. And when they say that the NICU is a roller coaster, it is exactly a roller coaster because one day you're doing okay and the next minute you're not doing okay. At about five weeks old, Allison has, uh, she has a genesis of corpus callosum, a subarachnoid cyst, she has a cleft palate, micronathia, she had two heart defects, um, she has a lot of dysmorphic features and we thought that she had uh, only one kidney. So you know, we just didn't know what to expect. But at about five weeks, they started talking about extubating her and um, taking her to surgery and trying to take the tube out. And if she could maintain an airway, that's great. But if she couldn't maintain an airway, she was going to get a trach. And I didn't know what a trach was. I envisioned an old man with a silver thing in his throat smoking a cigarette. I, I had no idea. But 30 years ago, there was no no such thing as HIPAA. And one of the nurses took me around to bed 32 and introduced me to a baby who just got a trach. And I was like, oh, that's not so bad. And to this day, I'm still friends with that baby's mom. So, you know, I kind of 
got used to the idea of having a baby with a trach. And we had a care conference and we were in a room like this with all the doctors there. We were waiting for the man, the man with the answers um, to come in and tell us what's, what's up. And he was late. He walked in the room with his entourage of ducklings behind him. And um, he said, Allison could be normal or have CP. Well, I work at DuPage Easter Seals now. I know what CP is today. 30 years ago, I didn't know what CP was. So as a mom, I heard normal. He got paged, he left the room, and he never came back. So the resident, um, who I like to claim is my own, because she was so wonderful, and always seemed to be there when bad things were happening, said, the Pikes want to know if Allison's going to live. And the geneticist said, her vital organs are functioning appropriately. Death is not imminent. I heard normal, and she's not going to die. I felt pretty cool about that. A week later, that same neurologist came to her bedside um, and did an exam, and he left his chart open. He wasn't there. Well, I walked in, and of course, what did I do? I read the chart, mm -hmm. and I read zero head growth prognosis, extremely poor. My world exploded. Here I thought that I had this normal baby who wasn't going to die, who was going to grow out of her trach because her jaw would grow. And I knew in an instant that I had a neurologically devastated child. It was awful. And the resident and one of the attending physicians came by and sort of fluffed me up. And I was like, how am I going to do this? I have two other little girls. And a baby with a trach and now this, and I just kept saying, how am I going to do this? And the doctor said, if you can't do this, we can find someplace for Allison to live. Well, that's all I needed to hear. And it was like, all right, pull up your pants, get your boots on. We're going for a journey. And that journey has been the most rewarding journey I've ever been on. I love hearing your story. You've already touched on so many important po points about caring for kids with special needs and families of kids with special needs, about how we share the diagnosis, how we meet their needs, and how we communicate, mm -hmm. and how you as a as a uh, mother have become such an advocate for your child and had to learn about the medical lingo and learn how to navigate it. And these are so many important components that we need to consider. Yeah, it is a journey of advocacy for sure. Allison doesn't have a voice. You know, she still to this day doesn't have a voice. So I have to be her voice. And I'm, she's been my biggest teacher. I think every child that comes into your life is a teacher. They always teach you something. But Elson opened up my world. I never knew existed. I now work in the field of families who have children with disabilities. I've worked at Easter Seals for 27 years. I've been volunteering at Loyola for 28 years, supporting families on some level. So I find it so rewarding to be able to do what I do. One of the things that strikes me about your story is this, like Mara pointed out, communication and the words that we're using. Obviously, the resident did good and the, and the attending did bad. What was maybe kind of some of the takeaway points that like students like myself should take and apply. I think that you just have to use, be careful of mm -hmm. how you say things um, and be careful that you don't destroy hope, mm -hmm. but be honest. Sometimes I think physicians can be honest to a fault where you walk away and 
there's you know you're like what just happened and I think the biggest thing too is recognize when you're talking to a family and you're delivering bad news when does that family glass over and they're not hearing you anymore Um, because that happens you know you can say one thing and I didn't hear the 20 things that came after that so that that is really important you know give them time make sure you have plenty of time to answer questions to come back the next day and ask do you have any more questions because how many times did you get in the car after a doctor's appointment and go why didn't I ask that so I think it's checking back with a family over and over again just to make sure that they heard everything you said. Right. That's really important. Even when we feel time-pressed, we right. need to take the time. You to need stop. to take the time. Yeah. You mentioned Easter Seals and how for many years you've been able to work um, with families. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about what Easter Seals is and what your role has been? Sure. Easter Seals is a pediatric outpatient program. It's located, we have three centers. We have one in Villa Park, which is our largest And then we have one in Naperville, and we also have a site in Elgin. And we treat everything you could think of. We have infants all the way through some young adults. We even have some adults that continue to come to Easter Seals for services, but we don't take new adults. They, like Amy, she's been coming since she was an infant, and she has cerebral palsy. She works there, and she also is still a client there. We have many clinics. We have a feeding clinic. We have a mobility clinic. We have a vision clinic. Um, We have an orthopedic clinic, so doctors come in and families can avail their services there. I work in social services there. I'm the parent liaison. As I said, I've been there 27, almost 27 years, and I started through early intervention before it looks like it looks today. It used to be grant-driven, and when the grant went away, I was fortunate enough they kept me on staff, and I think I have one of the most rewarding jobs at Easter Seals because I get to help families navigate this medical field and navigate school. And I come at it from a mom. I'm a mom. Mm -hmm. I'm not a social worker. I'm another mother. So um, my door is always open. Families come in. We laugh. We cry. It's just, it's amazing. It's an amazing place. Is it only available in this area? I guess what kind of... Easter Seals is a national organization, but each Easter Seals is operated as its own entity. So there could be an Easter Seals. There's a Peoria Easter Seals. There's a Joliet Easter Seals, but they all kind of look a little different than DuPage Easter Seals in Fox Valley. Did you first become involved with them because of your experience with Allison? I first became involved with them because of mm-hmm. uh, my daughter, yeah. She opened the door for me. Uh, the former CEO um, just sort of recognized something in me, I guess. I don't know. She was a great mentor and um, encouraged me. She knew that I was volunteering here, and I was writing a newsletter and sending it out, and she would get it, and just, you know, she just saw, I don't know, she just saw something that said, you'd be good at that. Mm-hmm. So I'm forever grateful for Marielle's. Well, I know we're grateful as well because you've got a really cool story. And just when we had our kind of debriefing session um, at the end of our pediatric clinic or clerkship, excuse me, I was touched. I was moved by your story, especially your story about the physician who <laughs> came about it the very wrong way. Uh, you might say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do have that letter here. If you want me, do yeah. you want me to read it? I would love <laughs> if you could share that with our our get our listeners. I think that they would appreciate that as well. Sure. And maybe you can give just a little bit of preface about what was the context. Okay. So this letter um, was written many many years ago, 
And I had gone to um, an ophthalmology appointment and um, I was late. I was late. I, I didn't, you know, follow. He wanted me there six months before and he just sort of walked in and I think he had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder and um, sort of accused me of being a non-compliant mother because I didn't have Allison's glasses with me. She doesn't really wear them. And I didn't think missing an appointment with my eye doctor was going to kill us. And he um, started yelling at me and he actually touched me with the prisms and yelled at me and said, this is what your daughter sees. And I was yelling right back. And it was kind of funny because the door was open and nurses just sort of scattered. And um, it ended very poorly, obviously. I sat in my car for quite a while trying to pull myself together because I was really, really upset. And I came home. And at this point, I am involved at Loyola. I'm, I'm pretty embedded here. Should I have said Loyola? <laughs> <It's okay>. um, <laughs> and I'm pretty embedded and I'm invested and I know people and I'm on committees. And I thought this experience has to go somewhere. I have all these feelings and it has to go somewhere. So I sat down and I wrote him a letter and I will read part of my letter it's kind of long. You know what? We've got all the time in the world. So. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, it says, after having left your office with my daughter, Allison Pike, I find myself very upset and angry for two reasons. One, for letting myself become so upset. And two, at you for having the unmitigated gall to imply that I was a non-compliant mother who was not putting her daughter's best interest at heart. Unfortunately, our appointment epitomized the reasons I'm involved in the continuity of care task force for children. We could have thought of a longer name. <laughs> um, and I go on to say, you may not have intended the appointment to work out the way you did. As our physician, however, walked into the room and inquired why I chose not to bring Allison back until now in a tone that was more than condescending before anything else was asked, I don't know that it could have taken any other course. Did you once stop to ask how she was doing? Did you once stop to remember that this is a child with a long history of chronic illness and they may have been a very good reason for not bringing her back until now? No, you did not. All you saw was a mother who waited six months to return, who said, no, Allison does not wear her glasses. No, I don't have them with me. We tried patching. It didn't work. I've seen other ophthalmologists and each time I felt like it was the first time. We did take her to a, a specialist. She, he is a developmental optometrist. So we knew that her vision, as involved as it is, we knew that she was seeing. And I go on to say, I would like for you to stop for a moment and think about what it might be like to have a child with chronic health problems who, since our last appointment in October, has been hospitalized five times, been to the ER eight times, and to her pediatrician several times a month with several phone calls in between those visits. Winter is a difficult time for my daughter and my family. Even though her illnesses this winter were not life-threatening, she is a neurologically impaired child with a rare genetic syndrome. Her prognosis is very poor, and since birth we have been told repeatedly that she's at risk of dying at an early age. Our main concern is and always has been keeping her healthy and alive. She is trached, fed by a G-tube, and dependent on us for all of her care. She does not walk, talk, sit up, or have any self-care abilities. She is loved and cared for very competently by myself, her father, and two sisters, ages 13 and 10. She attends a private daycare center where she receives her education, physical, occupational, and speech therapy. 
I would like you to imagine what it is like as you sing to her on her birthday and wonder if this will be the last birthday she will have or what it's like when she's wheezing and her O2 sets drop at 2 a.m. and you know you're headed to the ER or when she starts biting her lip and it won't stop and then you wonder how are you going to get it stitched up because she can't open her mouth or be sedated without going into respiratory failure or why when her feet and hands turn so purple they look like little bags of blood hanging from her arms and her legs and no one has answers for you. I want you to imagine what it has been like for the past five and a half years of giving everything you possibly can to this child without compromising your family too much or yourself completely. I have put my heart and soul into this child. She is an important part of our family who has taught us more about unconditional love and acceptance than you will ever dream of understanding. So if I do not put her glasses on every two seconds, hoping that she will, quote, have a change of heart and wear them without feeling like she is being tortured or come to my ophthalmology appointment when we actually have a healthy week. And I don't want to put her or myself through another doctor visit thinking that missing your appointment wouldn't kill us. Then, yes, maybe I'm not putting her best interest first. But when you said to me, I owed it to her to keep her glasses on, you were wrong. What I owe my daughter is to love her and care for her the best way that I can. I owe her two sisters who love her and don't resent her because their mother has to spend every second caring for her. I owe her a mother and a father who are happy with each other. I owe her the happiness and freedom to make choices as best she can. I owe her the best physicians I can find to care for her and her family. I don't owe her a mother who is full of guilt because she questions whether she has done everything possible even though I know I did. If you knew anything about me and my family, you would understand just how much we do what's best for her. I don't question your ability as a physician or your concern for giving her optimal care. I do, however, resent your complete lack of regard for my daughter is a whole child and not just a vision problem. I hope upon reading this letter, you will reevaluate the practice of making judgments on family before you consider the realities of their life. I hope you have a better understanding of my family and other families you will come to serve through your career as a physician. And I went on to invite him to join the Continuum of Care Task Force, whose goal was it to bring family-centered care to this hospital. And um, we never heard. <laughs> <laughs> and you share, shared with him and now shared with us and our listeners all these things that um, people don't have to consider if they've never had a child with special needs. But right. I think that's why it's so important to ask. If, if it's something you've never been through yourself, it's important to ask what what are you going through and what needs do you have? I'm curious now that you've got some perspective, if there's anything that you would have maybe told yourself at the beginning of everything, or if there were, or if there is advice that you give to families who are in the moment going through this new revelation of information. Yeah, that's, that's a hard question. Mm -hmm. Um, because in the beginning I didn't know anything and you're just going along for the ride. I mean, you're literally just going along for the ride, taking each day as it comes. I think the biggest thing for me was finding physicians that trusted me and educated me and listened to me because I can listen to Allison's lungs today and know, oh, she's probably got pneumonia. I hear, you know, crackles, I hear rails, or I hear nothing, and we're in trouble. Um, and I could call my pediatrician and say, you know, I need more albuterol, I need Augmentin, and I need some steroids. We need to get this stuff started. She trusted me and would follow through with that. 
So it's important, and I tell families it's important to listen to your gut. If you don't have a good relationship with a physician, find another one. They're out there. You don't have to just stick with somebody who's not listening to you. You work as a team. You know, I don't, I, I mean, I can talk all the medical lingo that anybody wants. Um, I've been asked many times, are you a doctor? Are you a nurse? And I'm like, no, I'm not. I have my AMD. I have my Allison's mother's degree. Um, <laughs> but I work as a team. I don't, um, you know, I don't dictate. I listen to you as well. But I will be the first to tell you that's, that's not right. That's not how you should approach this. So I like to think that in my job, I empower parents. I give them you know, the the confidence to be a good advocate for their kids. Do they give you any sort of, like with Easter sales, is there some form of like crash course for parents or, (laughs) you know, like, because it sounds like you have gotten a significant amount of medical information or knowledge. I mean, the fact that you're able to identify cracks, rails, or like all those good sounds, I mean, that is really a testament. But that, that kind of education came from my pediatrician. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, she educated me. She would give me the stethoscope and say, can you hear this? So that I knew what I was dealing with at home and I didn't have to continually run to the emergency room. And all of the physicians in in Allison's life and in our life, they are good listeners. It's been developed over time. I mean, I really have had... I can count on one hand the bad experiences I've had with doctors. And I think that's pretty valid and pretty huge considering she's 30 years old. And I can really, I can think of three, three bad experiences that had a significant impact on our life. I think that's pretty awesome. For sure. What about the relationship that you have to build with physicians or nurses or any healthcare providers in kind of a more acute care setting? Like when you go to the emergency room or admission to the hospital, how do you work as a team with them? And it's easy now because we're so seasoned. But I remember Allison's first trip to the emergency room. And I, as I said before, I said the joke in our house is that we haven't killed her yet. Um, but her first time, she was at home, and I recognized that she was having some respiratory issues. So I was smart enough to put some oxygen on her, and um, I took her to my a local pediatrician, and my sister drove us. But I didn't know to leave the oxygen on her. I left the oxygen at home. So by the time she got to the pediatrician, she was pretty blue. And we had our first ambulance ride to the hospital. And I was just like a deer in headlights because I just didn't know what to expect. Here's this four-pound baby. And so I just sort of stood back because I didn't. But it's those repeated experiences that just sort of make you trust them. And that's what you have to do. You have to build a level of trust with all your healthcare providers. And we were very fortunate that we we just we trusted the people that we went to. Our care in the NICU was so exceptional, and the care in the pediatric department is so exceptional because they get to know you, and they treat you as a friend. And I joke that Allison will be the oldest pediatric patient ever because I can't imagine her going to a regular floor because nobody knows her there. Right. <laughs> she has to go to pediatrics. <laughs> um, I don't think that could happen, though. So because of all the conditions that are kind of associated, is there ever like a group meeting, I guess, with between providers so that they can sit down and communicate and say, okay, or is it it's, it's more 
It sounds like the pediatrician is kind of the one that's leading the show for the most part. For the most part, it's the pediatrician. Mm -hmm. I mean, after that first big meeting where everybody Mm -hmm. was there, we've never had another meeting like that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sort of individual, I think. But we've made an attempt to always keep Allison's care at one spot so that the physicians, all her specialties, um, her specialist and her primary care were all at the same hospital. It just seemed there was more continuity that way yeah. instead of having splintered care all over the place. So that I think was important. I'd like to talk a little bit about Operation Homefront since we've been mentioning it. Okay. Um, so this is a program that we've been involved in uh, when we were on our pediatrics rotation as third-year medical students uh, where we were paired up with a family who has a child with special needs and just really the goal is to spend time with them and talk to them and ask questions and learn as much as we can about this experience that we've ne- never gone through. So you are instrumental in Operation Homefront. So can you tell us a little bit about how it got started? Yes, it is a wonderful program. It's been in existence for about 20 years. It started initially as a volunteer opportunity for the med students, and it quickly became a mandatory part of your curriculum. And you are paired with a family who has a child with a chronic illness or a disability, and you're required to do two visits with that family. Um, One visit, we like the family to have you into their home and sort of share their medical journey. Um, We encourage you to, you know, get involved with the children as best as you can. Um, Don't wear lab coats, go in and just experience what life is really like. Because families are amazing at how they take this crazy thing and turn it into their normal. Um, And then we encourage the families to take you out in the community. That can be a therapy session, that could be a park, that can be a movie, that can be a I mean, it could be anything. Um, We have one family that always takes the students to the zoo or a museum. So our families get pretty creative. I sort of handpick our families so that we have families who can be open and honest and not Dr. Bash. That's not the whole premise of this. We don't want it to just be a negative experience. We do share negative stories, but that's not what we're looking for. We want to be able to share open and honest. And we want to give you the experience of what it's like outside of a clinic setting. What's it like outside of a hospital setting? Um, Because when we come to the hospital or we come to the clinic, we're generally sick and not ourselves. And this gives you an opportunity to see families in their regular routine and see kids do amazing things. So it's it's a wonderful program. Yeah, it really is. How did you have the idea to start it and how did you make it happen? It came out of the Continuity Care Task Force, which is a a community, uh, sorry, it's a, a committee that was made up of doctors and families, and um, we just we just thought it was a really good idea. At the time, there was a couple of other uh, hospitals with similar programs, but there's not been one as long running as ours. Has anyone ever contacted you and shown interest in wanting to know how you do it and how they can start it? Actually, no, but I was contacted by a woman who does it out east. I believe she's at Yale and Harvard, one of the big fancy schools. (laughs) Um, And they have a similar program. So it was really nice to talk with her and realize that we, we have these really unique programs and are giving these students a really unique opportunity. Mm-hmm. I had a student tell me once that 
he came to this school because of Operation Homefront. He thought it was that unique that it was what sort of tipped him over the top to choose um, this school. Oh, wow. Yeah. I wonder how he heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think he saw it on our website. Mm-hmm. Well, it definitely is a very novel experience. I was, I mean, the family that I was paired with, I was blown away. I really appreciated just the candidness that the mother mm-hmm. had with me with discussing her life circumstances, all the challenges that she was facing with her child. And she, she was very, very open. And I'm not going to obviously share any details with our right. conversation. But yeah, I was, I mean, it, it's a world that I feel like as a physician in training, I, you don't get that exposure. Right. Um, and so I was very appreciative of just having that opportunity to sit down and the fact that they were so willing to just mm-hmm. share everything. Right. Um, Their life is an open book to you. Um, and they volunteer for this program. There's, you know, there's not, they're not getting anything from it other than knowing that they're helping shape future positions. It's a great learning opportunity. And I think families in general want to give back. I know I do. That's why I continue to do this for 20 plus years. Um, my husband always is like, are you still doing that? I'm like, <laughs> yes, I am. I'm probably going to do it forever. So it, yeah, it's, it's a great program. I would love to see more people have the opportunity at different uh, universities, different yeah, medical sure. schools, kind of create something like that. Mm-hmm. I love being able to observe um, in the therapy sessions. You get to see kind of what are all these resources that mm-hmm. that families use in order to improve the lives of their children, mm-hmm. um, especially in the communication, the, all the different devices that are used. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, one of the things that kind of also blew me away was the uh, how hard it is to get resources sometimes and how sometimes the greatest struggles are not with... I mean, obviously, physicians are challenging sometimes, but insurance companies. Oh, Lord. Yeah. I mean, I was, one of the discussions we had was just how difficult it was just to get a normal or not a normal, I guess it's kind of one of the more high tech power chairs Mm -hmm. and how that was a, I think it was a five year process for this particular family, which was just insane to me. Uh, And and even just routine maintenance, like making sure the tires are changed every, you know, two, three years to make sure that they can actually work. Mm -hmm. And the cost. Yes. Mm -hmm. The cost is incredible. I remember because I didn't work for three years after I had Allison. She was just too medically fragile for me to maintain a job anywhere. She was my job. And I could have had a full-time job just dealing with insurance because it's just a constant going over explanation of benefits and making sure things are really paid and, you know, fighting that they didn't pay something when they should have paid something. Yeah, it's a full-time job just navigating insurance. It's very, very frustrating for a family. Do you have any tips or tricks for families that are going through that? No, just be a bulldog. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, don't give up. Don't, if they say no, don't take that as no. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one point they... Um, weren't going to continue to pay for Allison's formula. Now she's only G2 fed. She does not eat anything orally. And I I was like, how could that be? So my husband works for a union. We were able to go and have an audience with their review board. And, um, you know, I'm a crying mother and, you know, I have Allison and she's an infant and, um, I stripped her. I took her clothes off and I put her on the table and I said, this is who we're talking about. And there was this room of a bunch of old men that were like, oh, my Lord. (laughs) Um, We got what we wanted. We got what we needed. But, you know, it took me to be a crying, insane mom to to make that happen. 
I think they were denying us to come to this hospital too, and then we figured a way out mm-hmm. around that. So, and when we left that that appointment, in was walking another family with a child with a disability, and you know I remember making eye contact with that mom, and now I'm crying, I'm upset, and she's like, "Oh Lord, what just happened in there?" Many years later, I ran into that mom, and she was like, "I remember you." <laughs> Did it work out to her favor? I think it did work out to her favor as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there are so many different things that pop up over time that you don't even imagine at the beginning that you'll end up being part of. Mm -hmm. Something that I've um, been kind of curious about is how you handle changing care needs as the child grows and gets older and bigger and and develops other needs. I think that um, we were very smart and lucky that when my pediatrician moved away, we transitioned to a, a physician who was med-peds. So we never had that medical transition. He was able to be her physician without, there was no pause. There was no, so that part has been very easy. And I tell families as often as I can and early as I can that if they they should look for a med-peds doctor, because especially when you have a child with a disability, you, you don't, that, that's a big gap. Yeah. Um, and going from adult care or, ch- you know, pediatrics to adult care for somebody who doesn't have any experience in that area is really difficult for families to find good mm-hmm. adult medicine. So it's just uh, a specialty that I think is is awesome. Mm-hmm. Now, kind of on the same line, you're pretty seasoned now. I am very seasoned. <laughs> but, but what happens when there are things that you're not sure of? Who are the people, the, the resources that you go for, for assistance? And, and it doesn't have to be just healthcare concerns. I mean, for example, with like navigating insurance or what are kind of your go-tos? Without, a, without question, the other parents are your best resource because they're going through it. They've experienced it. So you can, you know, I have families come to me who are navigating the school system. I've been through the school system. I can help you navigate that school system. So other parents are your really, really best resource. Mm-hmm. Or if I have medical questions, of course, I'm going to go to my doctor. Yeah. But even that. You know, I talk to my girlfriends about things that I'm, I'm questioning. And I have a core group of women that we've been meeting for 30 years. And it was that baby in bed 32 that made that connection. And from that connection, it grew to about, I don't know, probably nine or 10 of us. And I just had lunch with three of them last weekend. Some One of the girls was in from out of town and we had a three-hour lunch. And one of the moms has lost her son, but she still comes. And the other mom is like, you know, I can't talk about this with anybody else. Nobody else understands this. And that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome that I have that community and that I like to build that community for other families. So um, you should encourage families to reach out to each other, which doesn't happen a lot anymore because everybody's on their phone, plugged into a computer. Um, you have private rooms now in hospitals. You don't have wards. I met those moms because we were in the same space. And that doesn't happen anymore, which is really sad. The family that I was paired with, they shared kind of a similar experience with me where they would meet uh, yearly to get together and discuss things that had been ongoing. And it was very humbling to hear how... So the family that I had been paired with, there was only 80 documented cases of this particular rare disease. And to hear the mother's perspective on, you know, we lost another one this year. Um, for me, that was kind of like a moment where I was like, 
this is a it's a good thing but it's also kind of a hard thing Mm -hmm. like there's um the ability to sit and kind of buttress everyone else up and support each other but at the same time it also is probably a constant reminder of the reality of things that are happening yeah Um, out of that group of 10 women there are only three children still mm -hmm. alive today um everyone else has lost their child but those families don't go away they still come um we're their community Mm -hmm. we're we bolster each other. Um, I, I don't think that I would be mentally healthy without that group of women in my life. So obviously it has a big impact on, on you and the rest of your family. Could you tell us a little bit about the dynamics between um, the rest of your family or? Sure. I think that as a whole, my children are very typical. When Allison came home from the hospital, Stephanie was in um, I don't know how old she is. She's old now. Um, I think she was in first or second grade and she was so excited that Allison was finally home that we brought Allison for show and tell. And we talked about her trach and her different needs and they were just so proud of her and they couldn't wait to learn how to help take care of her. I remember Megan, who was only four at the time, was like, well, can I suction her? Can I feed her? And I'm like, no, you have to be seven. I don't know why I said seven, but I said seven. (laughs) So instead, that was the day of Cabbage Patch dolls. So I gave that baby a a trach. I traked him and I gave him a G-tube. And so she would walk around with her little canister and suction him and feed him. So she did what every four-year-old does is pretend play like her mom's doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So Allison's been a great teacher for them as well. I mean... Did she scare them sometimes? Yeah, she scared me sometimes. And then I have a son who's younger than Allison. And one of my favorite stories about Jack is Allison used to lay on the floor. Back in the old days, there was council TVs that were really low to the ground. So Allison would lay on the floor and watch TV. And I remember Jack being very small and working with his army guys and building this elaborate you know, army scape. And Allison every now and then would look over at him and she would roll back to the TV. And when he was all done, she rolled into the middle of his. <laughs> and I was like, I was so overjoyed because what a typical sibling moment. He's crying because she just destroyed his army battle. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, okay, this is very normal. Mm-hmm. But he's also the kid who could walk in the room, look at her and not say a word to her. But he's also the kid who could sit in the back of the car. And when her nose is running and, you know, it's not pretty, I would say, Jack, wipe her face. And he would just reach over and wipe her face without thinking or saying, ew, that's gross. I mean, it just was normal. And Allison lives um, at Misericordia today. And he surprised me the most when we told him she was going to live at this residential community. He was very upset. Why? Why? And it's because it's time, Jack. It's time. You know, it's just time for Allison to have her own life. And I was really surprised at the emotion that he had, because here I thought he's just this disconnected teenager who doesn't really, but he did care and he does care. And so our our kids are very lucky. Our kids are very lucky um, to have a sister with special needs because it opens up a world of sensitivity and empathy and just wonderfulness. Did you have any in-home caregivers for Allison? We did. We came home from the hospital with no care. It was just my husband and I. We learned how to, 
you know, suction a trach, change a trach, and at that time, drop an NG tube and feed her through her NG. We had no home care. It's through that experience that things changed here, and babies are not sent home without health care today. Eventually, uh, my pediatrician, the pediatrician in the community was very difficult to work with because he couldn't be here to advocate for me. So I wanted to find a pediatrician at this hospital. And I knew who I wanted. And she's like, I'm happy to be your doctor. I would love to be your doctor, but I will only be your doctor if you get some help. So I was kind of blackmailed. (laughs) Um, But I did it. I finally signed up for some in-home nursing care. And we pretty much used it initially just for respite care, just so Dan and I could get out of the house and maintain a relationship. It's really important to maintain a relationship between your spouse Um, I see a lot of relationships unravel because of a child with special needs. So it takes time and energy to to keep that connection alive. Mm -hmm. So we used um, respite care just to go out. And then eventually when I went back to work, then uh, Allison was in school at that point, and she had a nurse to go to school with her. And that nurse would come and stay after school with her until one of us got home from work. We didn't need night nursing. She didn't have those kinds of needs. And we had one night a week, Wednesday, that we had the nurse stay until 9 p.m. so she could give Allison a bath and do her meds. And Dan and I could just sit on the couch and watch TV or go out to dinner um, and just not think about, oh, I have to go do that. I don't have to do that. My wonderful nurse is doing that. Mm -hmm. Nursing care is a blessing and not. Mm -hmm. You need it, but it's also intrusive and they're unreliable oftentimes. So as wonderful as it is, and it's needed, it's definitely needed. I think some of Allison's early experiences having repeat hospitalizations might not have happened if we had good home Mm -hmm. care. So that's why it's really important that families are supported at home. Is that type of care typically covered by insurance? It is sometimes covered by your private insurance, but oftentimes it's limited or not covered at all. And then here in Illinois, they can apply to the Division of Specialized Care for Children and apply for their medically fragile technology waiver. And that waiver gives you the ability to have nursing in your home. I've been reflecting on an experience that I had where during first year was shadowing and we ended up working with a disabled child. And I remember feeling uncomfortable on how to interact with the child. Mm -hmm. So what is like the best course of action for physicians for in in terms of that interaction? The parents is one aspect, but then dealing with the child, Mm -hmm. what what is the best course of action? Um, Don't be afraid of them. Mm -hmm. Don't assume that they don't understand what you're talking about. Um, You should always talk to the patient. No matter what, Allison can't answer you. I'm going to answer the questions, but she's a human being. She's a person and she's, she's funny and she, she's, you know, she's really a funny kid and loves to interact with people. Um, She will also be the first person to turn her head away from you and and not even look at you if she doesn't like you. Mm -hmm. So you may think there's not anything going on in there, but there's a lot going on in there and just... Don't be afraid. Just talk to them. Just, yeah, just talk to them like you would talk to anybody. You know, we have um, a little boy at the center who has cerebral palsy and he's nonverbal and, but you just look at him 
and you see the light just coming from his eyes and he has the best smile in the world and he's going to grow up and do great things. But some people might put that limit on him, Mm -hmm. but you can't limit him. And his mother is wonderful in giving him opportunities that he might not otherwise have if you just assume he doesn't understand what you're talking about. When you know there's there's a spark in there, he just might be able to talk or walk, but he's a pretty smart guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know more about what schooling typically looks like uh, for the children that you've worked with. That varies. Okay. Mm-hmm. Allison was always in a self-contained classroom. With By law, they can't have more than 10 children in the classroom, and they all have multiple needs. It's just where her needs could get that. Her needs could be best met in a small group environment, um, well-supported by um, a nurse and aides and a teacher. And physical occupation and speech therapy would come in and do that. Um, But then we have kids who are mainstreamed into everyday classrooms with the right supports. Early childhood programs are really awesome now um, because they are more blended. So you have children with disabilities right alongside community kids who don't have any issues at all. And that is a really wonderful way that I've seen education move forward. But there's always a need for a multi-needs classroom for kids who have significant needs. So it's a great system. Yeah. In Illinois, believe it or not, we have a really good education system. After school, not so much. How does it vary between states in terms of assistance that's given to families? I mean, I think I remember hearing something that maybe, is it Wisconsin does a really good job? Wisconsin does a really good job, and um, Minnesota actually does an excellent job. Mm-hmm. But who wants to live in Minnesota? <laughs> is it because uh, of Mayo Clinic that's there? I don't or? know. Um, I just think that they are doing things right. I mean, families apply for a waiver, mm-hmm. and they're supported with that waiver. So that gives them Medicaid, and that helps ease that that financial burden, and things are paid through their waiver. So um, Wisconsin also has a waiver program. Mm-hmm. Illinois has a very limited waiver program, and it's very hard to get those waivers. So, yeah, we don't do it right here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are the some of the worst states that you've heard of? Um, and this I is more for families that it might yeah. be. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I've heard that Florida isn't very good for children mm-hmm. with special needs. Um, I, you know, that's really hard to say because mm-hmm. I've only lived in Illinois. Yeah. Um, but from what I know that I do know Wisconsin and um, Minnesota do a really good, good job. job. And North Carolina also has a very good reputation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of research coming out of North Carolina. Yeah. Is there any last minute things that you'd want to tell our listeners, things that you would counsel you'd give to medical students? I, I think just go in it with an open mind and don't look at a diagnosis or don't look at a chart and assume anything because you, you, you just can't do that. You're cutting yourself short. Even in you in this program, if you don't even choose to go into pediatrics, I think that your experience is going to have an impact on you as a future physician, no matter what area you choose to practice in. So just go in with an open mind and don't judge. Don't judge. It's easy to say to not judge a family. You don't know what their backstory is. You don't know why I didn't choose to bring Allison back till I waited six months. I was tired. I just didn't think that that appointment was going to be groundbreaking. You know, she still has significant vision issues. She still doesn't wear her glasses. 
Um, I don't even put them on anymore, but it's still an issue. So just enjoy your medical school journey. Um, Try to find opportunities to work with families who have children with disabilities, even if it's volunteering at you know, a special education classroom or a special recreation center, find out where our kids are and get involved. You know, there's special summer camps that kids go to and, you know, it's just immerse yourself in our world. It's a really wonderful world to be in. Well, thank you You're uh, very welcome. for being on here and for doing all this work. I know I'm very appreciative of everything that you've uh, you've done. I, I, like I said, this is one of my favorite experiences that I've had here while at Stretch. I'm very happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, is there any, uh, if our listeners are interested in getting involved in, in uh, either with Easter sales or, <clears throat> excuse me, Operation Homefront, what would be the best way to, to do that, to go about that? Um, well, they could always, um, Easter sales is a great place to volunteer. Mm-hmm. We have lots of volunteer opportunities. I could give you my contact information. Yeah. So my, our email address at Easter sales is really long. <laughs> um but my, I will give you my, my direct line at the center. That might be easier than an email. We can definitely, we'll post that on our uh, social media okay. page. Because, uh, I mean, yeah. unless you want to just throw yeah, it out I there. <laughs> <laughs> but they can contact me here. They can contact me, you know, pretty much anywhere. I'll give you my email. It's really long. Uh, but you have my email. So yeah. Put we'll that on there. But yeah, there's, there's, they can, I would love for new families to. Um, yeah kind of jump in. We always need new families for Operation Homefront. You just have to be able to share your story in a positive way, but honestly as well. Mm-hmm. So um, we're always looking for families. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I love learning from you. Thank you. Yeah, this has been great. It's been fun. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next week, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.